Welcome to another episode of Big Risk Energy. I'm your host, Roy Samuel. I'm a serial entrepreneur, having founded multiple businesses, including one that I scaled and sold to a gaming company in 2018. I've been an investor for the last five years. I'm super passionate about neurodiversity, suffering from ADHD and dyslexia myself. On this podcast, we talk to an incredible range of people, from actors to academics, investors to entrepreneurs, musicians, politicians, scientists, professional athletes, and everyone in between. And we talk to these people about risk, risks they've taken in their lives, risks they've taken in their careers, when those risks paid off, and when they didn't. And on today's episode, I am blessed to be joined by the one and only Jack Green. Jack is a double Olympian. He is the head of performance champion, and also a absolute ambassador, advocate, and champion of great mental health and well-being. Jack, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. And I think you're pretty polished on that now, hey, in that intro. I like it. Absolutely. That's yeah. the seven or eight times. It's just, <laughs> I'm just, I try, I worry about going on autopilot too much. And I'm just like reeling it off. And the ADHD brain is like, it's coming out here. My mind's somewhere else. I'm like, oh shit. Okay, okay yeah, all right, get, get back to it. But we're in, we're in the room. Um, so I'm so excited for this conversation because one of the things that I've mentioned on this podcast quite a few times is I really see there being uh, a real bond, a real affinity that exists between founders, actors, professional athletes, comedians. And the reason I say that, because that's a weird group, right? It's a weird group. But the reason I say that is because they're all people who have set their targets incredibly high, incredibly ambitious, you need to be all in in order to ever achieve those things. But the percentage of the likelihood of getting those outcomes is tiny. But the sacrifice you have to put in to get there, and I'm preaching to the choir in this, obviously, but I'm so fascinated to learn about like your journey with, with risk, what it's meant for you. So, so where does it all start? Well, I think just on that first piece, performance is performance. Full stop. It doesn't matter what you're doing if you're trying to perform and trying to be your best, there's going to be some pressure, there's going to be a pound of flesh, all of that jazz. So that's where the link is. It doesn't have to be completely exactly the same sector or, or profession to understand what other people go through. But in terms of my journey, I'm, um, I didn't really want to be an athlete when I was young. I, I wanted to be a zookeeper or an archaeologist. I liked animals and dinosaurs. Um, but like a lot of people, primary school, you kind of find out what you're good at. And, and that praise and that kind of external validation feels nice. We all like that. Um, it, it can't be something we always rely on, but nothing wrong with enjoying that. And as a seven-year-old, I ran down the grass track, beat everyone by a country mile and thought, oh, quite like winning things and being good at something. And kind of my, my journey with sports started at that point. And from that day onwards, I was writing stories about going to the Olympics and winning the Olympics. I wanted to win the 100 meters. That wasn't going to happen. Um, I'm definitely not Jamaican, so that, that doesn't help. But I was very, very fortunate to, to have the physical abilities to be able to kind of follow that dream. But I made a very conscious decision at the age of, age of seven that I was going to, to be an Olympic athlete, which, yeah, is a really interesting thing for someone yeah, that young. Absolutely. And at that time, were you cognizant of the risks of the sacrifices? Did anyone tell you that? Or was this just something, you know, blinkers on, this is me? Well, that's the thing. You talk, talk about sacrifices, and, and we talk about that a lot in terms of when you're going after something that you want. But I never saw it as a sacrifice. It was just a choice. 
I chose one path over another because I knew that path would get me to where I want. So it didn't feel like a sacrifice. In hindsight, I can look back and think, you know, a lot of my childhood and, and my, you know, late teens and early 20s, I didn't live a, a standard life, wasn't particularly enjoying myself, but I made that choice. And the result that I got was a fantastic, amazing choice. So it's an interesting one. I was never told, I come from a single parent family down in, in East Kent where not much happens. And um, there wasn't really that experience to guide me on that in terms of high success anyway, or elite sport or high performance. And I always had this kind of knowledge that it was going to be hard, but I always believed in myself and believed I was Greater than that, my mum is a child well-being and behavioural specialist, so I think I was Frankenstein in terms of <laughs> ego and self-esteem, and I think she put a bit too much into me. Amazing. So from the age of seven, I'm thinking, yeah, I can win an Olympic game. Yeah, although, I mean, that's incredible, and I, I always think about that, and you see that with, it's, it's a really tough one, with a lot of people who have uh, been given that level of encouragement. Like, sometimes it makes them difficult, but it makes them incredibly driven, and that self-belief piece, I mean, we were just talking to someone before who had a background in poker, and you get people who defy odds, even in a game as mathematical as poker, even in a game which is so, you know, driven by game theory and, and economics and, and, you know, calculations around it. There are just people who defy odds through self-belief, and I'm, I'm one of the biggest believers in that. Similarly, I, you know, I'm not special in any way, shape, or form, had some good success just because you know, if you can visualize it, if you can see it and drive for it. So how much does that self-belief, and not, you know, speaking on behalf of yourself, of course, but other athletes, other Olympians, how much does that belief play part in your ability to reach those heights? I think, especially when you get to the top level, it, it pretty much comes down to that. Really? Because everyone in Olympic final, in my case, you've got eight people in Olympic final. Everyone is physically blessed. Everyone has worked incredibly hard. No one's outworked one another at that point. Really? So what does it come down to? Well, it's going to be those little 1% of preparation and belief and mindset. And that's what I find fascinating. Because, yeah, you can, you can get up there by being physically superior, by outworking someone. But where you're really going to be the best of the best, that's where you've got to have that something different. Uh, and the best athletes I've worked with, and I've worked with other sports and, and met lots of people, and they are so driven, solely focused. And I think an interesting conversation, and whether we touch on it a bit, but understanding whether you can do that in a healthy way mm. is really interesting. And that something interesting. I'm, still, I'm still kind of debating and toying with and researching myself, because as you said, that sacrifice piece, that pound of flesh is not a healthy thing, but can you do it in a healthy way? That's... A really, really interesting topic, balance, right? And we are at a very, very interesting inflection point, I think, as a society, where you have glorification of elite mindset, grind culture, hustle culture, everything on that side, but an equally powerful and loud movement about balance and work-life balance and, and health and everything. How do the two combine? Are the two possible? I'm yet to find it. I'm yet to find it. The first two years of, of my first business, the first two years of this business, I'm not a human. I literally, I exist to walk from bed to laptop and back. This idea of balance, have you seen people who have reached those heights, reached those accolades and had that balance? 
I think there's a piece of acceptance in there first and accepting that the balance might not be in favour of one that's a healthy option as such. It might have to, to lend. But if you put a time scale on that, you said about, you know, for two years, this is what I'm going to do. Having that acceptance makes it a lot easier to do the unhealthy things mm. at that point because you're saying, you know what, this isn't forever. I'm not expecting to sustain this high intensity until I'm 80 years old. So this is just what I'm going to do now to get me to there. That's a really powerful thing to have that mm. acceptance piece. But in terms of balance, we're all individual. Same way that high performance, I believe we are all high performers. If you're trying to be the best friend you can be, the best son you can be, the best parent, if you're trying, you're trying to be a high performer, you are a high performer. Mm. So understanding that balance will be different for everyone because also performance and measures are different for everyone. That's really important. But for me, I think, if you think that balance is either going to be 50-50 or they will stay the same, you've got it completely wrong mm. because it can only stay the same if your life never changes. And we know the biggest variable in life is people, yeah. let alone our environment that we're in. So understanding as well as a human being, you will have those ups and those downs and you're not going to get it right every single time. So I think actually, I'm kind of just reflecting on this in the moment, I think acceptance is a huge part of, of that mm. balance, accepting that as a human being, you'll have ups and downs. And depending on your environment, the day, the week, the month, the year, one might have to lend balance to one side compared to the other as such. So the answer overall is no, I've never seen anyone do it perfectly, but I wouldn't expect them to because I don't think it's possible. Yeah, it probably doesn't exist. As with any part of society, part of, of mentality, perfect is not really attainable. Um, one of the things that I find, that I experience as a founder is when I have had, you know, two years, three years of intense work, and then it's time to take the foot off, foot off the pedal a little bit, sometimes I get a founder's guilt, right? You get a bit of guilt because when you're used to performing, to inputting, to committing to that level, it can be very difficult to take the, the foot off the pedal. How did you find it? Especially in the run-up to an Olympics, right? I mean, this is, and, and I'm going to really prolong this question now because it's another thing that really, really fascinates me. You know, the, the sacrifice, the choices that you make in the run-up to Olympics, I mean, this is once every four years. If you're lucky, you get two. So much pressure. So much pressure going into one moment. You know, as a founder, we have the ability to make decisions every day. We have the ability to have outcomes every day. But when you're going for that, I mean, it's, it's such a pinnacle. How did you find the, the run up to that, the taking the foot off the pressure, the pedal off, off the other end of it? I mean, just, just let, let's hear it. So there's lessons for everyone from how sports do it. You hear sports people talk about recovery all the time, preach about it. All recovery is is well-being, just branded up as recovery. That's physically resting, which we're very good at as athletes. I'm very good at doing nothing because I know, right, anything I do today will impact the next day. So I used to be told how many steps I could do a day, how much time I can have in sunlight. Wow. Because I lived in Florida for a short time training out there and it was, well, you can't go out in the sun because that will affect the next day. Wow. So it's quite rigid. So, yeah. But that's part of recovery. But so is getting my finances in order so that that isn't a stress that will lend to something on the track. That whole work-life balance as such of, well, life is going to come into our, our work side of things. I'm very passionate that you have to thrive personally to thrive professionally. You can still thrive professionally while struggling personally, but it's not going to be sustainable. Mm. You'll get quick wins potentially, but it's not going to stay around forever. 
that's fine if that's what you want, but the reality is we want long-term. So in terms of coming into an Olympics, once every four years, you are hoping to be at the very, very peak of your powers at that point, and anything can happen. You can have an injury, you can get food poisoning. I think Michael Johnson in, in one of the Olympics, he was, he was favoured to win before he went on to world records. He got food poisoning the night before. Wow. So there you go, your Olympics is done. Everything in, and I'm, I'm talking about from the age of seven, I'm planning this. I'm going into 2012 and I was 20 years old. And I had an absolutely brutal mindset that absolutely destroyed me, but it also made me incredibly good. I was sixth in the world at the age of 20 in an event where you peak between 28 and 32. Wow. I'm 31 now, I should technically be in my peak, I don't run anymore, but <laughs> yeah. I absolutely destroyed myself to get to a higher level at that point. For that one moment, to go to an Olympic Games, which was a London Olympics as well, so even more nuts. Absolutely. Um, I destroyed myself, I then didn't get the result I wanted, and it was like falling off a cliff. Yeah. And it wasn't because I wasn't good enough. It's just timing, I was young. I didn't have the emotional intelligence or experience at that point to handle everything that was being thrown at me. And I expected to be on this yellow brick road of success of, well, aren't I great, aren't I wonderful, everything's gone well for me, I'm gonna now go win the Olympics, be the youngest ever, and destiny's gonna look after me. And when that didn't happen, I finished fourth in the Olympics, I missed a medal by 0.13 of a second, and I also fell in the hurdles in front of 80,000 people. And I was sixth in the world at that point. I would have been the youngest ever Olympic finalist. And yet, because I wasn't able to manage my emotions and, and control my fear of failure in, in particular, and all these negative things that actually made me incredibly successful, mm. because I wasn't able to manage them, I ended up being in a really bad place and not having that long-term consistency. What I didn't do well at all, despite a lot of the way my perspectives and my views of life and, and how things should be, the one thing I was really poor at was emotional recovery. So physically, I was great at recovering. Right, you do your compression, your ice baths, you eat well, you whatever. You're going through the motion. All of the stuff that we all know. Right, you do this, this and this. But emotionally, I never switched off. I'm intense. It's, it's one of my kind of superpowers. If I go at something, I go at something. I'm all or nothing. That got me there very quick, but I never switched off. I lived in conflict and confrontation every second, every minute of every day, rather than just on the track. And because I couldn't switch off, it completely destroyed me and burnt me out, which is why I'm so passionate around this well-being piece. So how do you speak to a 20-year-old who has that level of, of success already, even if it's not realized in, in, in the way that thought it would, but all that potential, everything, how do you convince someone in that mindset that there is a healthier way of doing things and they need to change that? Because again, you know, relating to my own experiences, I know that I felt right, if this is what's led to great results and, and, you know, getting me to, you know, as far along as I want to be, I'm scared to make changes, which I know are probably going to be better, but I worry about the risk of losing that intensity, losing that almost psychopathic, you know, dedication to what it is I want to achieve. How do you speak to people now and say, well, look, you know, I know that you're scared to make these changes because it's been working so far, but you got to. I think... There's a few things, language is so important. So when we talk about intensity, people think you're just on. It's 100 miles an hour. Similar to, I've been talking about this recently about being ruthless. Mm -hmm. People think that's, it's quite an aggressive thing, right? Ruthless and I'll walk over anyone to get to where I need to be, cutthroat, bang. Understanding with intensity, being ruthless, for example, 
being ruthless with your time and your energy mm -hmm. is not a negative thing. Absolutely. Yet we've always thought of it as a more of a negative, more of a Wolf of Wall Street kind of thing. It's not at all. So this is how I talk. I, I coach as well. I had athletes at the Olympics last year and I'm no better coach than anyone in terms of knowledge. I'm really not. But what I excel in is I care about people and I treat them as human beings and I care about what happens off the track. And because they feel valued and because we look for consistency, we get high performance. They give me more because I look after them. And some of the lessons that I'll teach with them, one thing is I don't worry about results. And this sounds really weird. And this is a learning from me because my whole life was results. Particularly on a track, you get a stopwatch, everything you do is measured. Your worth every day is in a time. That's hard. It's great when it's great, but it's hard when it's not. Brutal. But we're all like that. So when I coach kids, for example, I don't use times and results. I ask them how it feels. How did that feel? Because I build self-awareness, mm. which makes them a better athlete and a better person. But in terms of my athletes on that point, I measure them on effort. At the bottom of every training program I have, it says effort over results. Because effort understands you're a human being. Effort understands that if you have financial stress, you've got some family issues, you're not feeling well, you haven't slept well, you probably haven't got 100% in the tank. So all you can do on that given day is give 100% of what you have. It might only be 60%. And I learned that from working with the best athletes in the world, world record holders, Olympic champions. They were not superstars every day but they were superstars in their application and their dedication. They turned up, they gave everything. And because they didn't go, every now and then you have to go slightly above and go into the well, of course you do. But if you go into the well every single day. Nothing left. Nothing left at all. That's what I used to do, every single day. And because I was able to endure, I was always rewarded for enduring. And that's, you're gonna, I'm ranting and raving about no, all kinds of things this now. This is super interesting. For me, we reward endurance but we don't reward enduring the right things. So I'll do this with my athletes. Let's measure on effort. I'll make them understand the importance of their personal life and how you can't, whatever you have is happening in your personal life will reflect at some point in your, your professional, in your performance. So we need to be able to get the balance there of not balance of 50-50, but balance of you're looking after that too. And then I talk to them about endurance and being smart in what you endure because not everything needs to be endured. I'm still learning this. I've come from the worst event you can possibly do in track and field, 400 hurdles. I have an absolute engine that for some reason, biologically I've been given, I can outwork anyone when it comes to physical. Don't know why, I just can. I used to be called two hearts, four lungs, because just keep nice. going. It's a great nickname. It's that's a great that's, one, yeah. That's a good one, yeah. In reality, I don't think it is anything biologically. I come from a single parent family where things were tough and lived in, you know, I think I was in 30 houses before being 16, uh, before 16 years old, living in B&Bs, paid for by the council, mm -hmm. just tough. Lots of love, fantastic in terms of that, but, but you had to endure. I was re rewarded for enduring there. I then went into a sport where the more you do, the more praise you get. Wow, Jack doesn't get tired. Wow, Jack keeps going. Then I started bringing that into my emotions and my mental health and my life. I have to just keep going. That was not the healthiest thing to do because at no point did I acknowledge whether I should be enduring it or not. And I do, you can do the same in relationships in terms of with friends and, and so on and communication of, I, I can take this, so I'll just keep going. That's my default. 
Because I know I'm strong, because I know I can take this, I will, instead of should I. Mm. Talk to my athletes on this. Know when to endure and when to put your foot down and say, nah, this isn't right. Because if you turn up onto the track, you've only got 10% in the, in the tank because of all these things going on, and you go, well, I'm just gonna endure it, and then you get injured, we've lost six weeks because of one stupid decision. And we can't have that. Yeah, so this is where that self-awareness is so key. And it's, and it's really, I think, uh, again, um, a fascinating one because often you see people who have that unfallible belief in themselves lacking self-awareness, right? Getting that balance between the two, is that something you can coach? So this is, this is really difficult. Self-awareness is so key, but ignorance is bliss. Yeah. <laughs> there are two parts. When I was, I achieved a lot in my early career I was sixth in the world at the age of 20. I was voted the most talented sports person of a generation in Britain out of any sport. But ignorance at that point was what you just, this is what I have to do, I'll keep going. I then ended up being diagnosed with um, depression, bipolar tendencies, and anxiety. I was considered a threat to my own life at the age of 20. At a point I'd just come fourth at the Olympics and I was spent six weeks in the Priory in Birmingham. I ended up taking two years out from the sport returning my self-awareness was greater. It was nowhere near it needed to be mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I still had lots of unhealthy mindsets and was still in sport. But I was much better in terms of the awareness around myself, health and mental health. And I found it really hard to find my edge because I knew too much. Because I knew maybe I shouldn't be doing that. It was much easier just to go at things. But I ended up with exactly the same results and actually won my global medals with more awareness than before. Now, as a young person with the ignorance and the mindset I had, I think I could have won the Olympics. Afterwards, I'm not sure if I could, but I did it really, really healthy and I was still incredibly successful. So I'm kind of doing a therapy session here with you no, at the moment this because is, I'm this kind is of figuring, out, for all, figuring yeah. out my own um, yeah. my own performance and so on. But yeah, actually, that self awareness piece sometimes sometimes you know a bit too much. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's the toughest. It's, it's, I say the same with with founders, and this is why I think it's such a an interesting one. The first time you're a founder, especially if you're a young founder like me, you know, I didn't come from a family where we had loads of things either, and you know, scrappy trying to hustle to build things and make money. And you need that delusion of like, yeah, we're going to be the fucking biggest thing in the world, right? And then the second time round, it's like you realize all the things that probably will go wrong. And you realize like all those things, and it is tough, but actually objectively, that self-awareness, that understanding of risk has, has been great. So you have a really, really interesting journey then of self-discovery, of self-awareness, of rebuilding, and then you go back into the Olympics again and then you get the, the same result. But at that point, you've got the toolkit to deal with it in a much better way. How, how, did you, how did you come back from it the second time? Yeah, so it's an interesting one. So I didn't know how long I was gonna have out. I just got to the point where I was like, I can't be in this high pressure and start to learn about myself and manage myself. I was just putting myself straight back in, you know, trial by fire otherwise. So I said to my coach at the time, I need a break. I don't know how long it's gonna be. It could be forever. It could be a day but I need to escape. I had two years out, I then moved to Florida to restart my career. Right, um, whereabouts in Florida did you move uh, to? Sarasota, uh, okay. where IMG Academy and, and the coach I worked with, worked with 80 Olympic medalists. Okay. And it's just like, 
a guru of nice i don't like the word guru but he if, there if was i was going to use yeah. it it would be for him <laughs> so um i moved out there and there was a lot of stresses around finances i wasn't sponsored i wasn't supported sport athletics doesn't pay particularly well anyway um but i i kind of sacrificed everything at that point it felt like a sacrifice then to go out there and restart my career but because i always believed in myself i thought well, I'll, I'll spend what little money I have left in this opportunity because I know it will come back. You're, investing, you're gonna, investing in yourself. Yeah, and yeah. I believe in myself, so yeah. not a problem because I'll win, I win the world championships, I'll win this and everything will come back to me. Um, and during that time, it was tough, away from friends and family. Um, and it was a huge risk going out there. I, I bankrupted myself to go out there because I believed in myself. Amazing learning experience. The reason I can coach is because I went out there. Amazing to experience different cultures and train. I think we had 12 different nationalities in our training group. Wow. That's a cool experience. Yeah, I was the least successful person in our group coming fourth in the Olympics. I was the only non-medalist, which is... It's a high-performing group. Yeah, yeah, bizarre, but great experience. However, things didn't go well for me that year. I got injured. I, I hit a hurdle in Switzerland. I broke both my thumbs, three ribs, and strained a ligament at my knee. I was told, nine months, you're done. Um, and at this point, I'm bankrupt. I don't know what to do. I can't afford to go back to Florida, so on and so forth. So I ended up coaching myself. And where are you at mentally at oh, that not, stage? Not great. Um, physically, great. Probably in the best shape. But mentally, just, just lost. And... And that's why I ended up coaching myself and training on my own every single day. And I ended up being a world medalist and a European medalist doing that, training on my own every day, Incredible. writing my own program. But it was the worst thing, really, because I was lonely. Athletics and sports are quite lonely, especially individual sports are lonely anyway. I had no social. I trained for a couple hours a day and then I'd be recovering and resting and you can't go out and be social and drink and have a laugh. And, and you know, there wasn't much of a network. So I was my only voice at a point that I still hadn't really learned about myself. In hindsight, I only returned to sport because it's the only thing I knew I could do. So it was the easiest decision. Mm. And that actually was really dangerous because I didn't know I could be anything else. So I just returned to actually what made me very unwell. And despite that, I, I had relative success, won medals, and I was always top 10 in the world, really cool, but supporting myself, working multiple jobs to do that. And then it kind of got to, to 2018, I had my last championships, it was Commonwealth Games, I came fourth again. Great fun coming fourth. Uh, they need to make like a is paper, that, paper or glass medal or is something. That the worst, is that the worst thing? Would you rather come fifth? Like I've heard that before from people. No, you want to come as high as possible. I don't possible? like anyone being ahead of me. I'm okay. not going to give someone an extra, <laughs> but obviously <laughs> that, that is tough. But yeah. I just got to the point, I did years of looking after myself but I still didn't, as much as I was talking about mental health, I was working with Mind and Young Minds, whether the government or mental health reform and elite sport, I still couldn't accept my own mental health, really. And it, 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 it took me till 2018, 2019 to see a counsellor. Yeah. Yeah, I was diagnosed just after 2012. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing, that I still was a high performer. I had greater self-awareness, but I was still incredibly unwell. Yeah. And I think that's... I share my story a lot. I've been speaking for, for 10 years and... and I think you said it earlier in terms of, you, you said you were nothing special. Mm. I'm nothing special. I'm just a human being that can run around. That's all it was. It happened to be the thing that makes, you know, that makes me special to other people allows me to have a bit of a platform. Yeah. Reality, I'm just a runner. Yeah. I was a human being that ran. And I kind of got to that point of 2018, 2019, and, and being so emotionally exhausted and broken that I needed to learn that. 
about myself, that I am just a human being, because I still didn't really know that at that point, and I still had the stigma attached to mental health. And yeah, obviously kind of skipped through a lot there, but no, it's, it's an interesting point. And you talk about the stigma of mental health. Do you think that's something that still exists in sports? Because, you know, from, from the outside looking in, it's so clear with uh, be it choice, be it sacrifice, the pressures, the occasions, the, the emotion, the photo finish and all of these things are, are heartbreaking for people, but there's still that stigma that exists in the sport, you think? Most definitely. Um, you know, awareness is greater. Yeah. I think that's in society as, as a whole, is with social media and, and people speaking out and, mm. and people who are seen as successful now speaking out, we're, we're starting to get better in people going, yes, mental health exists. Mm -hmm. But then it, they experience it either for themselves or within their circle. And we go back into that old mindset of, oh, you're all right, uh, grow a pair, the horrible saying of grow a pair, get on with it. So where we're at now is that the education is poor and the understanding is poor. Awareness, brilliant, but the reality of it, it's like, if it's not happening to you, it doesn't really matter, does it? Mm. Oh yeah, I can accept that exists over there as long as it doesn't exist over here. And that's a problem we've got. How do we now build the understanding and, and the education? And sport is terrible for that because we're still quite old school in sport as a whole. Me caring about my athletes is still seen as something that's a bit mm. bizarre. It's really, really interesting. And do you think that's because there is a perceived you know, if I, if I am open about my mental performance, mental state, mental well-being, not being 100%, that makes me look weak as a competitor. Most definitely. And you're not allowed to share. Yeah. So something I got taught very young, and it wasn't meant to have this impact, but it did on me because of how I apply things. And you say, it, I'm going to go do it, and I'll apply it, and I'll apply it to everything. And if it's, I'm focused on athletics... That's my life. I don't care about anything else. So my life and athletics will be one. I remember when I was young, I got told that when you cross the line, never go onto your knees, go onto your haunches, go on the floor. Never show your competitors that you might not have more left or that you're tired. Go around the corner and do it in private. It makes sense from mm -hmm. a sporting aspect. Mm -hmm. I need to get an advantage over you I'm competing against. And if I cross the line and walk off like not even breathing, you're going to think, holy shit, that guy's got more and I'm, I'm feeling awful. But from a mental health perspective, but from a mental health perspective but that's because, how I apply yeah, it. I'd yeah, then be like, okay, I can't show anyone yeah. because it's weakness. I need to go and do this in private. Mm. And that's, that's sports as a whole. And also... You talk about the weakness piece, that's the problem. We see mental health as a weakness. We see vulnerability as a weakness. We see kindness mm. as a weakness. Don't confuse those for weakness. That's actually just a lot of self-awareness and maturity yeah. and a lot of strength to say, I, I only really care about myself in this position. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what you think. And that's the control the controllables piece. When I'm running against, or not anymore, but when I used to run against people or I compete against anyone in anything, I can't do anything about you. If you're gonna go and sell your company for X, Y, and Z, you're gonna go do that. I can't do anything about your company. What I can do is nail my processes, my journey, nail everything in my lane. We call it stay in your lane. Mm. And it took me a long time to realize that. Instead of looking around, comparing ourselves on social media and all of that jazz as well, right, they've got this and this. Yeah, but I can only do something about that really by doing something here first. And I think there's that understanding and that strength within 
vulnerability, kindness within mental health of understanding it's just about you. Sort yourself and, and everything will come. And, and it's, it's fascinating because you would, you know, especially in an individual sport like that, where it's not, you know, you're playing against a team in that yeah. way, that stoicism that so, you know, lends itself so well there, you would think that people would be more open to working on themselves, whatever that might mean, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's mental. Um, but it's really interesting. And I think it's um, amazing to have people like yourself talking about this. I think it's uh, a shame there are less active sports people talking about it as well it seems to be something people talk about after and again i guess this comes back to people not wanting to show what's perceived as weakness uh, i guess it's probably the same reason you have less openly gay you know premier league players or you know all, all the different sort of areas that people are still uh, applying stigma to but do you think it's something that can change yeah definitely but i think that comes from society i think sport is a reflection of society a slow reflection, mm -hmm. but a reflection. So if we get that right, then it will have to change with, with sports and, and performance as a whole. I'm looking in, in businesses, and, and we're getting this very different leadership now, mm. particularly with COVID accelerated that, where, do you know what? I actually need to see you as a human being, and I need to value you and this yeah. organization to be there. The number one thing that people want in the workplace now, for the first time ever, is meaning. Mm. It was always salary and money. For the first time ever, globally, that's changed to meaning. So now we need to be able to reflect that within our leadership and our management styles to attract the best talent. And when you look at the generations that we have within the workplace now, we've got a big challenge there because you've got one generation managing a new one that mm -hmm. they see the world very differently yep. and that's tough. But people coming into the workplace now are actually looking at life first and going, well, how does work facilitate my life rather than you know, it just being one thing. Absolutely. I think that's important for us to start to understand. And I think as that changes, I think organizations and, and CEOs and founders and so on actually have a much bigger responsibility of these changes than they realize. Mm. Because if you have 50 people, 100 people, thousands of people, they're then connected to X, Y, and Z many people. You can change a whole city within one business if yeah. you get it right. And I don't think people realize the impact of that. But yeah. you, can you can start that change at home, essentially. Totally, and I, I um, not to get too existential about this, but I genuinely believe that's the only way to change the world, is actually changing the way that you treat the people around you, whether it's your coworkers, whether it's employees, whether it's family members, whether it's friends. It's actually, and this sounds fluffy, but I, I really do believe that when we live in a world where individuals have such little power to influence things on a macro level, mm -hmm. for example, we're competing with institutions with banks which really do control the way that things work in many many ways how can we as people make these changes the butterfly effect of treating someone well being nice to someone have you ever seen someone you know shout at someone who's working in retail shout at someone who's on the tube the impact that they go home they've had a bad day they shout at their kids that kid then has an impact on how they grow up. You know, it really is. And I, I, could, I think you put it so perfectly there. It's, it's that impact that we can have on the, the people around us directly that will actually change the world. So I think it's a, a really, really interesting one. And again, not to get too existential, but you know, I, I, I like the, the train that we're going down at the moment. Humans biologically are probably not designed to be professional athletes on the most part. And especially when it comes to 
competing in these ways. These are things which we haven't been doing for thousands and thousands of years. Well, may, I mean, maybe maybe we have, but do you know? Do you think the human psyche really lends itself to those types of pressures? And do you think it's something which you know you can have that that congruence between how people feel, how people perform? You know, do, does it work? It's interesting. I don't think we've ever, when you look at, at military, you look at sports and these, I don't think we've ever been set up for that and we've never done it before. Yeah. It's that whole thing we talked about healthy, unhealthy. Elite sport is unhealthy. I probably do, I know I'm already due two operations by the age of 25, I was due those. That's not healthy. And that's because I essentially overtrained my body because that's what I have to do. So the first part is, if you're doing something that's unhealthy, we have to accept that we probably won't make it healthy on that balance piece. But in terms of mindset, we're kind of coming back around to that acceptance piece of, you have to accept that you are doing something that you're not built for. But I think that's the sustainability piece of intensity mm. and understanding recovery. It's kind of coming full circle of, you can do it for short bouts. When I'm on the track for two hours, I'm on, but I need to learn how to detach from that and mm. step away from that. I think military, uh, military is a fantastic example if you go into warfare and they have to allow them to decompress before coming back and you still struggle and understandably so because that's not a world we're built for. Conflict, everything being a danger and a threat. We go very primitive of mm -hmm. fight, flight, freeze mm -hmm. and obviously military is going to be more fight because you are trained in that way. Yeah. But that doesn't lend to the rest of the world. So then you have to, they have decompression periods after warfare and after conflict because you know that this isn't good for us and this isn't sustainable and it's something that we can't bring into every day. How often in business and in high performance and sports do we really have that decompression? Business is the worst example for it. No because we go, right, right, yeah, I've got this massive project, we'll work towards that, I've destroyed myself, right, next thing. You don't go, I'm going to have a couple of weeks off now and then we'll start the next. How we build that in is an interesting one because you can't just say, have a couple of weeks. And we also, also shouldn't work for two years and then have four weeks of annual leave. Yeah. It, the damage is done by that point. Yeah. Four weeks doesn't solve it. So how can we build in micro recovery and small processes to be able to, you're talking about risk, but handle the risks that we're putting upon ourselves. How can we make it as healthy as possible by having those breaks and detaching? and having those moments of recovery and rest. Amazing, super interesting chat. We could probably do this for, for weeks, yeah. but I've got a few questions that I wanna ask you. So if you could identify the single biggest risk you took in your career, what, what is it and what was the outcome? I retired at the age of 28 when I was at my peak and it was the biggest risk because it was against everything in society and what people expect. Most people still don't understand why I retired at peak age unless they know me or they understand mental health and well-being. I retired because I wasn't willing to sacrifice myself anymore for something that I didn't believe in anymore. But it was the biggest risk because people still don't understand it. I could still be running now. I could have gone to the last Olympics. That's fascinating. And that was the biggest risk for me from a social point of view. Lots of other risks within training and moving and financially and so on. But that for me was was the hardest decision and the biggest risk I've taken. One I'm most proud of as well. 
Okay, well, my next question is to be, what are you most proud of? So there you go. There we that go. Was that's the efficiency you'd expect <laughs> of a professional athlete. So there yeah. you go. So my next one is then, is there anything that you would have done differently? Oh, huge amount. Um, so many things, but I think this lends to a question I was asked once after a keynote of, if I could completely get rid of my mental health experiences, my poor mental health experiences I've had, would I do that? And it was a really interesting question because the reason I'm very passionate and I want to help people is because I don't want anyone to ever experience what I experienced. And it's, yeah, not a nice place to be in. That's obviously an understatement. But the lessons I've learned from that and that journey, I'm a much better person. I'm a much kinder person. I'm better well-rounded. I can connect with people better. I'm happier. It's just I've, everything is better since. So I would only get rid of those experiences, those negative ones, if you could keep the lessons. And we mm. know that doesn't exist. Unfortunately so, not, right? Yeah, it's a, it's, that for me has always been a really interesting question that stuck with me because you think you'd just say, yeah, let's get rid of it all and, and have a nice, happy life. But I'm so much better now because of those, those experiences. The darker the shadow, the brighter the light, right? Yeah. yeah, okay. And now, knowing what you know now, what would you say? What does it take to be successful? It takes dedication to one thing, a genuine obsession with something, and there's nothing wrong with that, because if you love it, you enjoy it. If there's the positive sides to it, fantastic. Obsession is great. There's a difference between short-term success and long-term success. Short-term, if you want it now, go pay your pound of flesh, and you do have to do that. And if you're willing to do that, cool, crack on. I've got no problem with that. I work in well-being, and well-being soft and fluffy. Yeah, it shouldn't be, because mm. well-being is just who we are and, and how we, we act and behave and, and how we look after ourselves. And if you're willing to take that risk to get your success, brilliant. Long-term, for me, it's then looking at how can I do this for the next X amount of years? In the best balance for me, we'll bring it round, best balance for me. I know athletes that have to be 99% thinking about athletics to be successful. And I know some that have to be 99% social and messing about and enjoying their lives to be successful, but that's how they work because they're individuals. So pound of flesh if it's short term and accept it and pay it, but it's short term. Long term, think about the balance and how you can make it work with that rest and recovery. I think that's probably the best answer we've had to that question across every episode. That's, I'm sure you say that No, no, genuinely. <laughs> and I was thinking about before saying it, like, am I going to say this often? But no, that was, that was genuinely incredible. And my last question for you, Jack, is 15-year-old Jack walks into the room right now. What are you telling him? Just be kind to yourself. I was brutal. I wasn't very nice to myself. Um, so be kind because it will come. Uh, there's no set path, there's a journey. There's many steps on the ladder. It's not just straight up on the elevator and I, I never understood that. I thought I just had to get there and I had to be there. I didn't understand the journey. So be kind and, and go on that journey and learn from it. Amazing, Jack, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.